My name is Will Cook. I have the privilege of serving here at Perimeter Road as the student pastor. Know that you are very much welcome here, not only today, but always. We will be studying the, the book of Deuteronomy this morning. I remember last week as our friend and brother Denny Crosby was preparing to preach and he taught us that Christ is the best red heifer. Um, that resounds with me. I, I love that he put that into such uh, eloquent words for us. Um, I think one of the most challenging uh, ordeals that a preacher can undertake is to study, study a text and preach a text that is not too familiar to him. Maybe a chapter like Wesley and Denny have preached for us. But that's not what we're going to be doing today. Nope. Instead, we're going to be going through an entire book of the Bible plus an extra chapter added on. So yes, 35 chapters today is what is at stake. So I say all that to say this. Buckle up. It's going to be a bumpy ride. <laughs> I kid. Uh, but we will be moving quite swiftly through the book of Deuteronomy. So what better way to do that than to look in Genesis and to look in Matthew and to kind of visit Exodus a little bit there uh, as well. Um, so we have a hefty text, but I, I know we're going to do really well fit it. My, my goal this morning is to not only point us to the cross, but also in looking at the book of Deuteronomy and, and exploring the theology there within, is to really give us an idea of how the whole Bible kind of fits together, how these pieces interlock. We're not just looking at Genesis or a passage from Genesis. We're not lo- just looking at Matthew or a few verses from Matthew. But what we're doing and, and our desire as a pastoral staff here when we're going through these sermons and, and, and looking at the series, Uh, from a big picture is to show you that the Bible really is the inspired Word of God and it fits together. So we're going to look at the gospel narrative. We're going to look at how the Bible is complete in its entirety. So yes, we're going to be pulling much from the book of Deuteronomy, but we're also going to see how that ties into what we have previously studied and how that will catapult us into what uh, is coming down the, the pipeline for us when we look at Joshua, as well as pointing ultimately to Christ. Now, all that being said, this is a hefty topic. So if through, throughout the sermon this morning or at the end of the sermon, you find that all I've done is create more questions than answers, which is likely going to be the case, I want you to know there are some great study aids available to you. Uh, these sources I found to be extremely helpful, and so I've kind of picked my top three that I want you guys, if you have any interest in continuing the study of the book of Deuteronomy, which is awesome, by the way, uh, it's one of the most quoted Old Testament books uh, by Christ, um, so it's, it, it is rich. As some of my seminary professors would say, it is quite pregnant, ready to give life to us. Uh, just don't use that phrase around Claire. Um, she knows that that is quite painful as well. Um, a Covenant Relationship is a sermon by Tim Keller. I found this to be extremely helpful. I learn very well through listening. Um, and so if you're a listening learner, then you may want to Google search A Covenant Relationship by Tim Keller. Um, it is free and it is easily accessible. Another great text to read is Dynastic Covenant by Meredith G. Klein. Um, a lot of scholars refer uh, to Miss Klein's work, Dynastic Covenant. It is 
really, really solid, and it just kind of explores and opens up uh, some, some really intricate concepts in the book of Deuteronomy. And finally, I borrowed this book from Joby. Um, it is sitting in my, de- in, in my office right now on my desk, but I know he uh, will be getting that back next week. So you might have to purchase this one, but I recommend it. Systematic Theology by John M. Frame, uh, particularly his entry in that book entitled Covenant. So that's what we're going to be looking at um, today is Deuteronomy and particularly the fact that Deuteronomy is a book about the covenant, the covenant that God has made with his people. Now, in, in the biblical literature, there are lots and lots and lots of covenants. There, there are um, theologies that, that kind of uh, spur off of these different covenants. And so you can be a dispensationalist, you can be a covenantalist, you can be somewhere in between, you can take and pick and mesh them together, you can do whatever you want to with it. But what we're going to do is we're going to kind of avoid all of that. We're not going to get caught up in the, in the crosshairs of theological debate, but instead I want us to really look at the very basic framework of God's covenant with his people in the Old Testament time and how that relates to us today. So on to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is the last book in the Pentateuch. Um, It has 27 references to the English word covenant. 27 times you will find that English word in the uh, book of Deuteronomy more than any other book of the Bible. Genesis plays a close second place. uh, The word covenant appears 26 times in Genesis. So those first five books of the Bible, we have covenant on the bookends, if that makes sense. The Bible starts with covenant, and then in Deuteronomy, uh, which is the closing of the Pentateuch, we see it close with covenant. So I hope that makes sense to you. Moses emphasizes the covenant, because that's what God commanded him to emphasize. So you're going to hear me use that word covenant a lot today. I hope it doesn't land on deaf ears. This book was penned by Moses. It is a sobering reminder for the Israelite people to stay faithful to the commands of their Lord. In its essence, what we see is Moses remind the people who God was, what He has done for them, and what He now expects the people to do. Moses is now aged. He's a wise man. He's nearing the end of his time on earth. He has lived a full life. He was uh, raised in the house of Pharaoh only to escape and then come back and set the people free, as we have talked about so much in this series of set the captives free. He was the forebearer of the good news that the people in Hebrews uh, were looking to, and it was through him that God delivered the people. And they have spent the past 40 years living their lives freely, but in the wilderness. And so now God has brought them to a place where they are knocking on the door, getting ready to enter into that, quote, promised land, the land of Canaan. And Moses can see that the promised land lays before the people he has been leading. He is, unfortunately, quite miserable. We see at the end of Deuteronomy, kind of chapter 30 through 35, Moses goes off by himself. He is discouraged. He is dismayed that he does not get to enter into the promised land due to his lack of faithfulness. To God. His inability to uphold his end of the covenant keeps him from receiving the blessing of the covenant. 
That's what we will learn is that the covenant includes blessings. Nonetheless, Moses makes the most of his last days. He is setting the Israelite people up for success. He truly wants the people of God to experience the blessings of God. And so what he does is turn their attention back to the covenant. The Bible Knowledge Commentary says this, Moses was preaching the law to Israel to impress God's word on their hearts. His goal was to get the people to renew the covenant made at Sinai. That is to make a fresh commitment to the Lord. I'll pause here and I'll just say, wow, what if at the end of our days that was the heartbeat that we all had? That is, we're seeing the finish line and we're, our lives are coming to an end. We're drawing to a close. We were so impressed uh, by what Christ has done for us. We were so uh, enamored by what was accomplished for us on the cross that we realized the short window of opportunity we have left, all we want to do is impress upon the hearts of people around us to renew the covenant with God. What a mission. As Dan read this morning, Deuteronomy chapter 7. You can open your Bibles there. We'll read from here, Deuteronomy chapter 7, beginning in verse 6. And I want to point out that it's important for us to understand the why. Why God is doing this. Why the covenant. Why, why, why. Ask that question. Beginning in verse 6, we see it laid out right for us. It is because the Lord loves you. There's a series of sermons in that. Short statement. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that He swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps the covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments, even to a thousand generations. Why is God renewing the covenant? Why is Moses reminding the people about what happened at Mount Sinai? Why are we uh, going back and seeing how God went through such uh, a huge ordeal to set the captives free? Because God loves us. Because God loved them. The covenant of God begins with love. A true covenant begins with love. Deuteronomy chapter 29, verses 12 and 13 say this, So that you may enter into the sworn covenant of the Lord your God, which the Lord God is making with you today, that He may establish you today as His people, and that He may be your God as He promised you, and as He swore to your fathers, to Abraham and to Jacob. So what exactly is in view with this word covenant? What are we talking about? That's a little bit of an archaic word, as Tim Keller would say. He would say it really doesn't resonate with us in our modern Western culture of this time. We don't go around making business covenants with people. We don't shake a hand after we close the deal on a car and say, I covenant to give you this car if you covenant to give me some money. We, we don't use this term, terminology too much. But in its simplest definition, the word covenant means an agreement. An agreement. But it's so much more than that. Uh, one of the best modern day examples we have uh, to help us understand covenant is the covenant of marriage. Uh, I toyed with the idea of uh, 
showing a couple of clips from my uh, wedding ceremony when Claire and I were married. And uh, in the interest of self-preservation, I've decided to spare you from that. So you're off the hook. Lucky you. Um, But what we did was we stood before each other. We stood before God. And we stood before our church. And we literally said, I covenant dot, 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 to have and to hold, to love and to cherish, dot, 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 till death do us part. We covenanted with each other. And that covenant began with love. Because we loved each other so much, we were willing to commit our lives to each other. That no matter what happens, no matter what circumstances befall us, no matter what obstacles get in our way, we are going to uphold our promise. Tim Keller says it this way. A covenant, it is a relationship far more intimate and personal than merely a legal business relationship. Yet, at the same time, it is far more durable, binding, and unconditional than one based on mere feeling and affection. A covenant relationship is a stunning blend of law and love. A covenant relationship is a stunning blend of law and love. If I could take that a step further, what I want to say, love will lead us to law. Love will lead us to law. Law doesn't lead us to love. God's commandments and His uh, rules that He has written down in the Decalogue and uh, the things that He tells us we have to uphold, that doesn't necessarily lead us to love God. The fact that uh, Claire and I are willing to commit our lives to each other has nothing to do with the fact that when we were in college, she came to me and she said, listen, you will love me. No. No. We were willing to commit and to covenant with each other because of our love. Similarly, when we pledge our allegiance to our Father in heaven, we do so in light of the fact of what He has done for us. And so we're going to explore this concept. I've heard it pronounced a few different ways. But we're going to explore this concept of a suzerainty treaty. Okay, that's a mouthful. But this gets into that text, Meredith G. Klein. She she fleshes this out wonderfully. And she talks about a suzerainty treaty. Now, a suzerainty treaty was common in ancient Middle East. It is common in biblical narratives. And so we're going to study it and we're going to look at what is involved with a suzerainty treaty. Okay, if I'm saying that incorrectly, I apologize. So here we go. Uh, Most often in Scripture, covenants are agreements between a great king and a lesser king. Now, the great king is called the suzerain and the lesser king is called the vassal. Okay, The terms of the agreement are not from mutual negotiation. In other words, the two parties don't always see eye to eye. But instead, they are unilaterally prescribed by the great king, the suzerain. What the great king wants is what is established. What God wants with his people is what is established. Now let's look at this further. The great king is the author. He is the initiator. The suzerain is the one who sets the covenant in motion. He outlines the terms of the relationship. The covenant typically includes at least three things. We're looking at a suzerainty treaty, and it includes at least three things. Number one, the name of the great king. 
We have to see that. Number two, the historical prologue. In other words, what has the great king done in history up to this point? He's establishing a covenant with the vassal, the lesser king. Why? Why would the vassal accept the terms of agreement? Because the suzerain says, here's what I have done for you up to this point. And finally, number three, the stipulations or laws that the lesser king is expected to obey in his gratitude toward the suzerain. So take the Ten Commandments, for example. We look in Exodus. I told you we would hit on Exodus. We have to have Exodus in view in order to properly understand covenant theology. Exodus shows us the Ten Commandments. Moses goes up to Mount Sinai. He visits with God, and God gives him these Ten Commandments. And how does he begin? He says, I am the Lord. I am Yahweh God. So he states who he is. He says, I am the suzerain. I am the great king. You, the people, Moses, you're speaking on their behalf. You're kind of the mediator at this point. You guys are the lesser. You're the vassal. But I, the Lord Yahweh, I am the great king. And I am initiating this covenant with you. Now, why would you agree to the terms? Why would you agree to these Ten Commandments? Well, we need the history behind this. Because I set you free. Because for 400 years, you were enslaved to Pharaoh. You worked by the sweat of your brow and the the muscles of your back. and, And it was miserable. You had no hope. No chance at a future. Your children were working and they were uh, literally uh, beaten and whipped and bruised. And you cried out in desperation and you said, Lord, set us free. And so me being the great king, the God Almighty, I am Yahweh God. I took it upon myself to set you free. We see it in the ten plagues. We see it in the uh, splitting of the Red Sea. We we see it in the the sinking of Pharaoh's army. That God performed this, this marvelous exodus for his people. And so now he enters into covenant through what is known as a suzerain treaty. But there's more. There's more to this biblical concept of covenant. The definition that Theopedia gives us for covenant is this. In the Old Testament, the word covenant is translated from the Hebrew term berith, which means to cut. And hence, a covenant is a cutting with reference to the ancient custom of cutting or dividing animals into two parts with the contracting parties passing between them. So we see that there is a visual representation of what is at stake as the covenant is being made. Now, in order to get this, we have to go back even further. So we're going to go back to Genesis. Genesis chapter 15 What we have in view here is the covenant that God has made with Abraham. So we're going to call this the Abrahamic covenant. God said, bring me a heifer. Let me give you the uh, Bible passage first. Genesis 15, uh, verses 9 through 10. Genesis 15, verses 9 through 10. God says to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. Moving ahead to verse 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, 
the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Amorites, I'm sorry, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. God covenants with Abraham. And we see kind of a, what we would consider grotesque. You might keep your children from watching this on TV if it was turned into a drama series. But literally what happens is God instructs Abraham and he says, look, bring me, bring me the cow, bring me the goat, bring me these other animals and cut them in half and split them apart and lay them down. Now, our family pastor, Joby Crane, is the first person I ever remember teaching on this concept. What is in view in Genesis 15 is that Abraham and God are well aware that as this covenant is being made between the two parties. If one of them should fail to uphold the covenant, they would become like these animals. They would be split apart. Their blood would be splattered. Their entrails would be dangling. They would be dead. The lifeblood drained out of them. It's imperative that we understand this. It's imperative that we understand the cursings associated with breaking a covenant yield to death. We have to get that. Breaking a biblical covenant has a curse of death. It's hard for us to wrap our minds around that because today in our society, when we make a deal with someone, we close it by shaking hands. And if we're really, really serious, and if the deal is, is, is high in value and very, very important, we may emphasize the promise by spitting in our hands first. Shaking, swapping a little spit the old-fashioned way. But that's not what's in view here. The biblical view of covenant tells us that if you're going to be a covenant breaker you may as well be dead. Now, those of you familiar with this Abrahamic covenant may know full well that in this culture, when we're looking at the suzerain and we're looking at the vassal, when we're looking at the great king, we're looking at the lesser king, it was always the lesser king who had to take the walk. It was always the lesser king who had to walk between the two animals. Every now and then, you might find a great king who would walk behind him. But that was rare. Instead, what you had is, is the weaker party. Saying, look, I've got so much to gain. I have nothing to offer you, great king. There's nothing that I can bring to the table. Uh, what's that view here is Abraham can't uh, create children on his own. He can't uh, have offspring by himself. Uh, he can't have nations. He can't do all these different things that he so longs for in his heart. And so God says, look, I will bless you. I will grant you offspring. I'll do it in my way, in my time. But we have to covenant together. And so what we would expect to see in this Abrahamic covenant is for Abraham to take the walk. For Abraham to pass by the dead, split animals. So that when he covenants with God, God can say, if you don't keep this covenant, Abraham, you will end up just like this bull, just like this goat. You will be dead. Because that's the curse of breaking a covenant. Again, I'll reference Keller. He says it this way. 
Here it is God who passes through the pieces. Remember when we read Genesis and we're looking at chapter 15 and it said a smoking fire pot and a flame passed through the the dead animal pieces? That was God. That was Yahweh God. Abraham wakes up from a slumber. He has the dream where God covenants with him. And the first thing that he notices is that God, the great high king, the suzerain, he's the one taking the walk. We never see Abraham take that walk. And this is why. It was amazing for the Lord to walk through the pieces, but for the servant to not even make the oath. You know what that meant? It meant that God was making the promise for both of them and taking the curse on for both of them. God was in essence saying, not only will I be torn to pieces if I fail to uphold my end of the covenant, but Abraham... I'll be torn to pieces if you don't keep the covenant. What a king. What a king. To show the level of God's commitment, the seriousness in his heart of making and keeping this covenant, I think it's important for us to reflect on our own hearts. Let's go back to the illustration of marriage What do we do when the covenant is broken? What do we do when that marriage covenant has been compromised? We can walk out or we can stick it out. We are faced with a very tough, a very grueling decision. What do we do when our spouse has broken covenant? We made those vows on that great wedding day. We brought everyone together to see us make these vows. We stood before our pastor. We stood before our church. We stood before God Almighty. And we covenanted with each other that no matter what, we would be faithful. We would be loving. We would be sincere. We would always be there for one another. What happens when that covenant is broken? Will we be a coward? Or will we be committed How will you react when your spouse confesses to gambling, alcohol abuse, maxing out the credit cards, or viewing pornography? What if they break their end of the covenant? Will you uphold yours? What is to be done when the romance fizzles, when the children's schedule crowd out the date nights? You wake up one morning and you're not sure if you still love your spouse. You're not sure if your spouse still loves you. Will you be a coward or will you be committed? Will you keep your covenant. What will you choose to do when your husband, when your wife confesses adultery? Will you fight for your marriage? Will you be a covenant keeper? Sure, I understand that the Bible makes allowances for certain things. But what I also understand is that God's Word pushes us, encourages us, compels us to keep our covenant when we shouldn't have to. That's grace. Perhaps your marriage is up against it. Perhaps the person that you covenanted with more than any other person, the promise that you made from the heart more than any other time in your life 
you've got these trials, these obstacles, these hurdles, these tough, tough questions. Let me remind you of the vow that you took, the oath you made, the covenant you committed yourself to. When the relationship is built on love, when the relationship is built on your love for the other person, rather than what you're able to get in return, then true covenant is taking form. I know this is sobering. I know this is serious. I know this isn't full of warm fuzzies. But what we're after here as a church is to see a people committed to God, even when things get rough. And if we can practice that in our homes, if we can practice being committed to our spouse when things get rough, if we can practice being faithful to our God when things get rough, then I think we're on the right track. And what that begins with is a heart of love. Remember what I said, a true covenant begins with love. It doesn't begin with law. You don't love someone because they command you to. You love someone in view of what they have done for you. When God covenants with Abraham, when God covenants with the people at Exodus, and when Moses reminds the people of this great powerful covenant here in the book of Deuteronomy, what we're seeing is that we covenant with God because of his love for us. That is true covenant. Will you exercise love in your heart? Moses failed to uphold the covenant. At Meribah, he acted faithlessly. He struck the rock when God said, all you have to do is speak to it. Show my power. Show my majesty, Moses. Let the people know how wonderful I am. If you just speak to the rock, I'll open it up and, and I'll give you uh, what your thirst uh, long for. And instead, Moses, in a fit of rage, struck the rock. Acted faithlessly as God's mouthpiece. Moses can't enter into the promised land. So he's passing the torch to Joshua. We near the end of the book of Deuteronomy and we see his charge to the people. We see his reminder of the covenant and we also see him, again, passing that torch to Joshua as the new leader of these people. And I don't want to take too much wind out of the sails of next week's preacher because we're going to be focusing a lot more on Joshua. But what I do want to do is point you to the fact that it was up to Joshua to lead these people into the promised land. Joshua, whose name truly means deliverer or redeemer, would take the people across another river as God was split those uh, waters apart so they could walk again on dry land as God puts his stamp of approval on Joshua and the people would go through delivered and redeemed into the land of Canaan. But what's more important is that we understand that it is the true Yeshua whose name also is Jesus whose name means deliverer and redeemer who would lead the true people of God into the true promised land and that is what is at stake because it took a huge act of grace in order for Jesus Christ to take on that role of true redeemer for us. He is the supreme covenant keeper. And it is Christ ultimately who fulfills the covenant. Not Moses, not Joshua, but it is Christ who became that animal. He was split on his side and the blood poured out so that the curse that we all need, the curse that we all deserve, the curse that we all stand uh, ready to take on from God because of the covenant that was made, Christ took it upon himself instead. Matthew chapter 26 I pray you turn with me and look at Matthew chapter 26, beginning in verse 26. I believe the Word of God states it eloquently. 
We're going to read a couple of verses here. Matthew chapter 26 says this. Now, as they were eating, Jesus Christ took the bread. We're looking at the the Lord's Supper, the Passover feast. They've gathered together. Christ is getting ready to have his body split open as that uh, heifer or as that goat. He's getting ready to take on the curse of the people who have broken covenant with God. And, And so he's instructing his disciples this way. He says, now as they were eating, Jesus took the bread and after blessing it, he broke it. Again, broken. We see that that visualization real to us. He broke it and gave it to his disciples and he said, take Eat, this is my body. And he took the cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it all of you. Why? For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Christ says, look, you never kept the covenant. You never upheld your faithfulness to God. Never once in your heart have you maintained an attitude of obedience and love that God deserves. So what you truly deserve is to have your own body split open. You deserve complete and utter destruction. But instead, here, take this. Take me. Take my body. Take my blood. Take my flesh. Because this is poured out for the covenant the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, uh, the covenant of works, the covenant, whatever you want to call it, this is for the covenant that God has made with you. Because when God walked by as a a flaming torch and and a smoking fire pot, what he was saying is, you can't uphold this covenant, Abraham, but me initiating it out of love, I will uphold it for the both of us. That's love. R.C. Sproul says it this way, it is Christ who brings the promises of all the covenants to fruition. It is Christ who brings all of creation into into reconciliation with God, thereby ensuring that God will never again have to wipe out all of the earth. It is Christ who makes Abraham's family innumerable and a blessing to the earth by becoming the righteous seed and who many are called to the kingdom. It is Christ who makes the people of God the treasured possessions Moses commanded them to be by offering atonement for their sins. And it is Christ who protects Israel from all her enemies by sitting on David's throne and destroying the power of the evil one by his reign of righteousness. It is Christ the fulfiller of the covenant, the better heifer, the better Moses, the better Joshua, the true deliverer, the true redeemer of the people. He keeps the covenant for us. It is Christ. Is he seated on the throne in your heart? Is he calling the shots in your life? Is he the captain of your ship? How else do you want me to say it? Is Christ... Lording you? Or are you lording yourself? Joshua would do a great job of leading, and again, I don't want to take too much out, away from next week's sermon. Joshua does a fabulous job of, of leading the people in God's ways, but ultimately, their hearts would be handed over to idols, even though they covenanted with God. Where's your heart? Where is our heart, church? Are there some idols that we need to viciously tear down? Is there some sin that we are constantly going back to? As Joby likes to say, as a dog uh, returns to its vomit. Thank you, King Solomon, in that proverb. Are there some uh, situations in your life that you continue, continue, continue to rebel against God in your heart? Some habitual sins that you're unwilling to deal with. 
is Christ lording over you. He has covenanted with you. And He has upheld both ends of the agreement out of love. Our best response is to return that love in obedience. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6. Why did Christ covenant with us? Why did Yahweh God covenant with us? Let me remind you, it is because the Lord loves you. Joshua chapter 1, verse 7. One of the first things we hear is God giving a stern warning. He says, only be strong and very courageous. Be careful. Be careful. Being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. How do you do that? How? How do you stay on the straight and narrow? How do you avoid distractions? How do you keep your heart pure and focused on God? How do you do that? Faithful obedience. Faithful obedience. There there is a, a great tension that exists in the biblical narrative. Yes, we're called to keep the law. Yes, we're called to live in grace. Do both. Do both. Wrestle with that. Wrestle with it. Understand the cursings that come along with breaking the covenant. That curse has already been upheld by Christ on the throne. When He uh, went to the cross and spilled His blood and the water came out of His side and He breathed His last and He went to the grave and defeated death and hell once for all, He did that because we couldn't uphold the covenant, yet we are still called by God in the Old Testament and the New Testament to keep the law. How do we do that? We rely on God to be our intercessor day in and day out. We wake up and we breathe in God's law and we say, God, help me to do this. And then when we mess up, you know what we say? Thank you that I'm covered under the grace and the blood of Jesus Christ. Yes, that is a great tension and I can't fully explain it. But live in it. Live in the grace and law of our God. Live in it. Strive for faithful obedience. I'll close with a couple of questions. Those questions will be preceded by this statement. In spite of humanity's failure to uphold the covenant, God has remained the faithful liberator of His people. He has set the captives free. Not just in the book of Exodus, but for all time. And that freedom comes to those who believe. God is the faithful liberator. Would you be the faithful follower? What does that look like for you? What are the the obstacles that are keeping you from faithfully pursuing God? What are the idols that you need to tear down with the help of the Holy Spirit? What are the sin habits that you need to break with the help of the Holy Spirit? Do you need to rekindle and renew that covenant that you made with God? Or do you need to make it for the very first time? We're going to close with prayer. We're going to have counselors standing in the back. If you'd like to to make your chair a place of prayer, please do that. If you want to visit with our pastors, please do that. We want Christ to be worshipped. 
Will you worship him in your, in your heart? Is Christ lording over you? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for covenanting with us. Thank you for taking both sides of the agreement on our behalf. When we had nothing to offer, Lord, you paid the price for us. God, I pray for my own heart. God, that I would rekindle and renew my covenant with you. Lord, that it would be a very real, very tangible expression of my faith. Lord, thank you for setting the captives free and thank you for breaking the chains of sin and slavery forever. God, I pray that my hope would rest in you, that my faith would be found in you. God, I pray for our people, Lord, that they would battle sin, but not on their own might. God, I pray for our people that they would have such extreme faith, Lord, that they cling to the cross in spite of what's going on in their lives, Lord, that they are always focused on you as their God. Lord, I pray that they would mortify their flesh. Lord, I pray that out of a heart of love, we would all seek to obey and bring glory to your name. 